Creator God, thank you for the opportunity to learn and share and the opportunity to share the good news. Holy Spirit and Sustainer, I ask you to align our mouths and our ears to your purpose for the glory of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Good evening, friends. My name is Paul, he, him, his. For many of you, this will be the first time hearing me string more than a couple sentences together. I've been leading worship at the 1030 service here at Prince of Peace since July. Some of you have met my wife, Amy, who is taking my place with the guitar tonight. We are both currently students at Luther Seminary, where we met Pastor Natalia last year. My personal journey to seminary was a long, winding, circuitous path. This is actually a pretty common refrain among our classmates. For many of us, there's a familiar Jonah-type narrative of being called, resisting, and trying literally everything else that we are good at or qualified for, and somehow ending up in a classroom learning Hebrew before we knew it. As you might have guessed, I'm not fresh out of college. I've taught high school, I've attended bar, I've wrote and recorded songs, I've worked for a decade in the health industry, and I even started writing a novel of dystopian speculative fiction last year before finally saying yes to God and investigating this call. And this is not at all unique. Many of us, seminarian, feel that through this long path, each step has been part of a preparation process. So just a few weeks away from my 44th birthday, I'm here giving my first sermon, and I am delighted for the chance to speak to you all tonight. So I'd like to start by discussing what is going on in the gospel text today and comparing it to another encounter documented in another gospel. In the sixth chapter of John, Jesus is already a fair bit into his earthly ministry. And today's passage follows the familiar accounts of Jesus feeding the crowd of 5,000 with five loaves of barley and two fish. And later in chapter six, Jesus is walking on water to meet his terrified disciples on their way to Capernaum. Our reading today picks up in Capernaum, when the large crowd from earlier in the chapter catches up to him. Those are the 5,000. It's a new day, and they're hungry again. Having just been part of the miracle of loaves and fishes, they ask Jesus what sign he's going to give them so they can believe. They're asking for more food. They want more manna. Jesus knows what they're about, and he calls them out. He tells them to be more concerned about sustenance that lasts. And they're totally buying it. They can smell the bread, they know it's good, they want some of it, saying, Sir, give us this bread always. This text reminds me of Luke's story of Jesus' encounter with a rich young ruler, but it's upside down. Unlike the crowds coming to Jesus for a physical miracle meal, Luke's rich young ruler seems to understand the eternal implications of God's kingdom. Because of his wealth, he's not concerned with where his next meal will come from, but he is interested in the kingdom. He can imagine the kingdom. He knows it's good. He wants some of that. But when Jesus tells him to 
sell his possessions and give the money to the poor, he goes away dejected. He can't bear to do it. The bread of life is there for him, but he's not ready to sit at the crowded table. In both of these stories, we hear Jesus make important claims about himself and about the kingdom. In both cases, we have seekers who want what Jesus has, but can't quite grasp what it will mean. In today's reading, when the crowds ask Jesus to feed them again, he tells them who he is. I am the bread of life. When Jesus makes I am statements in the Gospel of John, the author is alluding to Yahweh, God's name, given to Moses in the Exodus story. I am who I am. And like the Exodus story, the crowds are still primarily concerned with where their next meal is coming from. Can we blame them? 2,000 years later, we live in a time of refrigerators, food processors, and global distribution services. And yet, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, over 700 million people live in severe food insecurity. Here in the United States, the USDA reports 37.2 million Americans live in food insecurity, roughly a tenth of our population. Such great abundance, and 10% of us are at risk of going to bed hungry every night. Maybe the story here is not the faithlessness of the hungry crowd, but rather the faithlessness of a society that, to this day, hasn't learned to care for one another. Maybe the story is that we need to bring the rich rulers and the hungry crowds together, the wolf and the sheep together at a crowded table, as if that's easy. On that note, let's talk about American Thanksgiving. This holiday is a tough time of year for many folks. There is a colonial history behind the American Thanksgiving narrative, a, a history of undeniable violence and genocide, making this a traumatic event for many of our beloved Native and Indigenous siblings. This is not my story to write or to tell, but it does deserve our contemplation. For folks who have lost loved ones recently, especially for those who will have a first gathering without someone tomorrow, these late-year holidays can be another sort of trauma. These are not my stories to write or tell, but they also deserve our contemplation. The story I will tell today is based on a simple concept, a crowded table. I grew up in northeastern South Dakota, the youngest of nine. Some of my older familial siblings already having children of their own by the time I was old enough to remember family gatherings. And beyond this, my mother is the oldest of seven children, and my father is number eight of ten. So I know something about crowded tables, crowded houses, too. The story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 always kind of resonated with me, because that's sometimes how the family reunions felt. Like, who is going to feed all these people? Of course, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's laying the foundation for what his church will eventually call the sacrament of communion. I grew up Lutheran, but a different brand. So the church of my youth practiced a closed communion. They had a closed table. That meant that I didn't get to experience the sacrament until after I was basically able to recite most of Luther's small catechism from memory. As an adult, I couldn't square my understanding of the gospel with an exclusive communion table. The good news is good for everyone, or it's not good news. If Jesus is the bread of life, how could a church, based on the good news, turn folks away from participating in this kind of community? 
So here I am in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America in open communion, and it is now my privilege to say all are welcome at this table. Again, it is my privilege to say all are welcome at this table. I need to acknowledge my privilege. As a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in America, as a heterosexual able-bodied man, the stakes of radical inclusion are always really low for me. The worst thing that can happen to me for welcoming everyone to the table is that someone on the internet might call me a heretic. And for Lutherans, that's kind of a badge of honor. One of the most important things I've learned in my seminary journey so far, paraphrasing my mentor, Pastor Kelly Chapman, I need to acknowledge my privilege. Don't deny it. Don't ignore it. Don't try to lose it, but rather leverage it and use it on behalf of equity. Work to extend that privilege to everyone. But does that mean welcoming the wolf along with the sheep to our crowded table? One big problem of radical inclusion is that the simple concept of the crowded table becomes very complex in a pluralistic modern American church. If we welcome immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers to our crowded table, and we should, can we also welcome immigration law enforcement officials? If we welcome our LGBTQIA siblings to our crowded table, and we should, can we also welcome business owners who would refuse to serve them? How can we welcome the wolf and the sheep to the same table on this side of the kingdom? These questions don't have easy answers, but they also deserve our contemplation. I don't suggest a solid answer here, but I do offer a vision of the kingdom where such a thing may be possible. This vision is called the allegory of the long spoons, and it's usually attributed to Jewish rabbis. In this parable, a teacher is asked if there is a heaven and a hell, and if so, how can we understand them? The teacher responds with a vision of a long dining hall featuring a glorious feast spread across an enormous table, a crowded table. All the food one could imagine is available here. Just insert your preferred Thanksgiving feast in your mind's eye. Everything one could want. But the catch is that the utensils are too long and awkward to feed oneself. With so many people sitting so close to each other, there's no way to effectively use these spoons to bring one's food to one's own mouth. Trying to bring the spoon back to the mouth results in the, in the food falling to the table and annoying your already irritable neighbor. Every attempt to feed oneself results in frustration and ultimately torment. At this crowded table, you simply can't use your own tools to feed yourself. The guests who figure out how to feed each other across the crowded table with these long spoons, enjoy community and abundance. Those unwilling to share and serve each other remain in a state of scarcity, greed, and isolation. Now let's remember, Jesus doesn't condemn the rich young ruler. He doesn't say you're gonna burn or anything like it. He shows compassion for him. The man is welcome at the table. But to fully participate, he has to give something up that he's just not ready to give. Can a wolf really sit down with a lamb at the crowded table? As Jesus reminds the disciples in Luke, with man it's not possible, but with God all things are possible. So maybe it starts with gratitude. If we can recognize that our blessings are a result of God's goodness and mercy and not from our own merit, maybe we could start to use our tools and use our privileges to care for our neighbors.
living in this time of great abundance alongside great scarcity. Let us recognize our privileges. Let us give thanks to God, who has blessed us with the bread of life, through no merit of our own. And in doing this, let us commit to caring for one another, to feeding each other across a crowded table. Let us live into this promise, into this abundance, in reconciliation with God and with one another, in life everlasting. Amen. Done.